Our Father, the psalmist, opens up the section in Psalm 119, and he says, Oh, how I love your law. And Father, we, we want to say with him that we love your law, that we love your revelation, we love your scripture, we love your word, and we love your gospel. And we want to confess to you that, that in some ways we have not demonstrated our love for your law. We are guilty of loving other things. We know that love is demonstrated by a hard pursuit after the object of that love. And so, Lord, we are guilty of not pursuing your law, your word, your gospel as hard as we should. And so we would open up by asking your forgiveness. Please forgive us of abandoning sometimes and, and forsaking your word, your law that we love. He says, it, it is my meditation all the day. Father, we, we thank you that we have your word, that we can meditate on it, that you've not left us in the dark. You've not left us without revelation. You've given us to it. You've given it to us, and we have the privilege of being able to think on, meditate on, reflect on, and absorb your glorious and beautiful revelation. Praise your name. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Praise your name, God, that you are not unwise, but wise. You are not a foolish God, but you have infinite knowledge and infinite understanding and infinite wisdom. And you have not hoarded it to yourself, but you have transferred it to us through your word and through your law. And right now, as a corporate body, we want to thank you that you have given to us wisdom. We were fools. We made foolish decisions. We did foolish things. And yet, you have shown us the greatness of your will. You have exposed to us the glory of your very personhood, and it has made us wiser. We make better decisions today than we did years ago because you've brought us your word. Praise your name. I hold my feet back from every evil way in order to keep your word. I don't turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Father, we would confess again that we have not kept your word and we have not um, maintained a true loyalty to it. And so please forgive us of going the way of our flesh and going the way of this world and going the way of the prince of the power of the air. Please forgive us of being lured into and tempted into walking away from your truth. And Lord, thank you for the, the obedience and thank you for the, the faithful walk that you've given us in areas of our lives. 
or there, there are husbands who've been faithful to their wives and wives to their husbands for years and years and years. And this is because of your wisdom being revealed to them and them walking in faithfulness to that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise your name. There are children who have responded to the gospel and have put their faith in Jesus because of the word that was revealed to them from a very early age. Praise your name. There are single people who are walking in purity even though the world is telling them otherwise because of how your word has gone into their hearts with power. Praise your name. The psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And right now, Father, we would pray that your word would come to us in sweetness. As we read your scripture, as we study it word by word and phrase by phrase and verse by verse, Lord, keep us from despising it. Keep us from being bored with it. But cause it to be like honey to our lips that we want more and more of it because it brings us joy, it brings us life, it brings us happiness, it brings us excitement. Do that for us today in this moment, right here, right now, that we might be able to say with the psalmist, oh, how we love your law. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. So this week I told my boys a, a story that I would like to share with you right now. Once upon a time, there were these three boys. Their names were Eddie, Freddie, and Teddy. They are age nine, eight, and seven. And Eddie, Freddie, and Teddy were active boys. They were creative boys. They were um, mischievous boys. They were into a lot. They spent their days, especially in the summer, going around their neighborhood, playing, riding their bikes, climbing trees. They, they spent their days getting into the woods and going for heights and trying to build tree houses and, and doing what boys do every day. And in their neighborhood... There was this one estate, this one large piece of property that was fenced off. And every day the boys would ride by this property and they would see it and, it. and it had rolling hills and green grass and large magnolia trees that looked like they would be wonderful to climb. There was a stream that went right through the middle of the property that, that looked as if it, it, it ended into a waterfall that then culminated into a small pool in the, in the distance, in the, in the center of the property, way off, it looked like there was this large two-story house. It, it had a porch on the first level and then a wraparound porch on the second level. And it looked as if there was a slide that came off the second level to the left side of the house where you could slide down from the second level down on the ground. And on the right, it looked like there was like a, a fire pole to slide down if you wanted to there. The boys would see all of this every day and it was almost like they would salivate over the funness of this property. But there was only one problem. There was a sign on the outside of the property that said, no trespassing. 
no trespassing. So every day they would play and do their thing, but they would also look over at how it looked so much fun, and one day they were bored. One day they, they just got really, really interested, and Eddie, the oldest one, said to the other two, he said, guys, let's, let's go over the property. Let's do it. They said, but, but Eddie, we can't. We, it says no trespassing. But in their minds, they really wanted to do it. And since Eddie was the oldest, he said, guys, I'm going to count to three. And at the same time, we're going to get on that fence and we're going to climb it and we're going to go over. We'll only stay 30 minutes, but let's do some exploring. And so Eddie said, one, two, three. They all jumped on the fence, climbed it, and then got over the top, jumped down, and they began to run onto the grass. And at that point, their hearts are beating as hard and as fast as they've ever bet. They've ever beat. Because as they're doing it, they're thinking, oh, we're scared. Oh, we're nervous. But we're so excited. And, and they thought to themselves, we never knew that trespassing could be this exciting and this mysterious and this creative. And so they saw these trees right in front of them. And they, 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 they were the trees that they had seen so many days in a row. And they, and, and they said, let's all climb our own tree. And the first one up wins and the last one to the top is a rotten egg. And right as they're approaching the trees, three men in black suits jump out from behind the trees and grab each of the boys and put handcuffs on them and throw them into the back of a wagon. And as they go in the back of this wagon, they stop by and there is this, this master. You could tell he, he is the leader. He is the ruler. And they said, what should we do with him, chief? And, and he says, take them all the way to the very back of the property, to the cave. And so they go to the back of the property in the cave, thrown in the back of this wagon. Their, their hands are cuffed. And one of the men in black goes to this big, huge wooden door. It is massive. And he knocks on it. Knock, 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 knock. And slowly but surely, the big door opens and this mountain of a being comes out and he looks ugly and he sounds mean and he smells terrible. His name is Darko. And Darko said, bring them to me. And Darko takes all three of the boys, they're already handcuffed, and he shackles them together. And he takes them inside the cave, he closes the door, and he leads them further and further and further into the cave. And the further they get, the darker it gets. And the further they get, the colder it gets. And the further they get, the wetter it gets. Until finally, he gets them into this little nook in one of the parts of the cave, and he hands them a pickaxe. And he says, this is your job for the rest of your life. You are to take this pickaxe and go at the walls of this cave every day. And as you chip away this wall, you are to investigate it for gold. And you are to find the gold and give it to me, and I'll give it to the master. And so from 4.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m., every day of your life, you are to do this as you are shackled and chained. And this is the deal. You'll get one meal a day at lunch. You'll get a piece of bread, a piece of cheese, a piece of meat, and one cup of water. And you'll work the rest of the time. Boys are scared to death. They are unhappy. They don't know what to think. They don't know what to do except to do exactly what Darko tells them to do. And that's what happens. 
And, and days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years. And all the time, they have lost their fun, they've lost their create, creativity, they've lost their vision because it's so dark, they've lost everything about them in life that they had previously enjoyed. Life was miserable. And they long, they wish that, oh, if we could just get one more meal in a day, or if we could just get one day off from this work, or if we could just get a candle to, to light so that we could see one another, life would be so much better. But for them, it was miserable. One day, they were chipping away at a wall. It is dark, and all of a sudden, a light shone back toward where that wooden door is. And they looked back, even though it was a long way away, and they could see the silhouette of a knight in shining armor. He had opened the door, and he had a big helmet on, and he had a breastplate over himself that covered his chest, and he had a shield in his left hand, and he had a sword in his right hand. And when all of the slave masters like Darko saw this, this knight, they grabbed their weapons, they knew who he was, and they ran straight for him in order to kill him, in order to defeat him. But one by one, this knight in shining armor cast them off and pierced them through. And he made himself further and further and further into the cave until finally he's looking over Eddie, Freddie, and Teddy. And he says to them, boys, do you want to be saved? And in unison, they say, yes, yes, we want to be saved. And he says, are you sure that you don't want to try to save yourself? And they say, no, no, you save us, you save us. And so he takes a cloth and puts one over each of their eyes. He throws them on his shoulders and he runs and runs outside of the cave. He's got them on his shoulders and once he gets outside the cave, he's protecting their eyesight because he knew it would be terrible for them when they got out. He jumps onto a horse and the horse begins to run. And the horse runs and runs and runs and runs. And to the boys, as they're draped over the shoulders of this knight, they're thinking he's running for hours he's running for days until all of a sudden the horse stops and the knight got off the horse and put the boys down he took off their blindfolds and they found themselves in a royal castle the knight showed them to a shower area where they got cleaned off and and they put on brand new clothes he then ushered them into the large dining room where a feast awaited them, chicken and steak and bread and potatoes and beans and juice. And after the meal, they, they were escorted to their own rooms where they had their own beds, their own pillows, their own blankets for the first time in years. And they slept soundly. And the next morning, he, he woke them up. Instead of having his knight's armor on, though, he was wearing a purple robe and a golden crown on top of his head because the knight was actually the king. And so the king escorted them to the roof of the palace and showed them his kingdom. And as they looked out, for miles and miles and miles, there were rolling hills and bountiful gardens and beautiful trees and rivers and streams and, yes, even waterfalls. And the king said to the boys, This is my palace. This is my land. This is my kingdom. It all belongs to me. 
And because you trusted in me for your deliverance, it now belongs to you as well. The boys were overwhelmed with this news. But they had one question. And he said, what about the place that we trespassed on? What what was that place? Who, Who does it belong to? And the king said, I have an arch enemy. He is a master deceiver. And he tries to mimic what I have. Except that it's all an imitation. Everything that you saw was a facade. It it was a fake. The stream that ran through the property was not water. It was sewage. The trees weren't magnolias. They were made out of cardboard. The house wasn't real. It was nothing more than a staged exterior. There was nothing on the inside of the house because there wasn't an inside. You see, every day he prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting to devour anyone who is enticed by his deception. And you three were no exception. You knew you shouldn't do it, but you did it anyway, and it plunged you into the domain of darkness. But no worries now. I came to you. I rescued you. You belong to me now and forevermore. You're my kids. You're king's kids. You've been redeemed. My kingdom belongs to you. You see, Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14 says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, this is exactly what King Jesus has done for everyone who has put their trust in Him. The story I just told you is a picture of what God in Christ has done for us who believe. And so right now, I want to give you the three aspects of redemption that should ignite our hearts toward a life of Christ-exalting worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. The first is the process of redemption. The process of redemption. We see the process of redemption in verse 13. And in the process, I mean, what what does it look like? What, What does redemption actually look like? What is that process? And so, if you don't mind, either keep your eyes glued to the verse on the screen or down in your Bible, and so we're going to ask a few questions. The first question we're going to ask is who? Who did the redeeming? Paul says, He has delivered us. He has transferred us. And so we want to ask the question, who is He? He is who? The Father. The Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. We we see that in verse 12. He is the Father. And what Paul wants us to know is that He did it, we didn't do it. He did it alone and we had nothing to do with it. Redemption was not a team effort. Redemption was not a synergistic process. The Father did it all on His own. And this fact is so simple, but it is absolutely crucial to understanding redemption. If you were redeemed by God, it means that you did not redeem yourself. But God did it. He did it alone. You didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You didn't white-knuckle yourself all the way to redemption. 
You didn't live such a good and holy and righteous life that all of a sudden you looked up years later like, I have ascended into the kingdom of God. I have redeemed myself. No, no, Paul says he did it. He has delivered us. He has transferred us. I think we can say this. Redemption is an act of the divine will. Redemption is an act of the divine will. And it is a result of the divine work. God the Father is also God the Redeemer. We also want to ask, who did he redeem? Who did he redeem? He says, he delivered us and he transferred us. So it's important for us to, to ask, well, who is us? Is us um, all of humanity? Is it everybody who, who lives in the world, who's ever lived and whoever will live? Who is us? Well, the text would tell us if we read Colossians 1.1 all the way down to 1.14. Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother, to the saints to, who are faithful brethren in Christ Jesus. He's saying all of those who have put faith in Jesus, who have trusted the person and work of Jesus, that's who us is. And so he has delivered us, those who believe in the Son of God. I think it's important for us to say that redemption, redemption is neither a universal reality or a universal privilege. Everybody doesn't have the right of redemption. And everybody does not own redemption for themselves. There is a sea of humanity who is not redeemed. Why? Because they've not put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. So who did he redeem? All those who put their faith in Jesus. I would ask you this morning, have you put your faith in him? Do you trust him? Can you be described just like the Colossians are described? Those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. So who did the redeeming? God the Father did. Who did he redeem? Those who have put their faith in Jesus. And then we want to ask the question, what? What did he do? Would somebody be so bold to tell us from verse 13 what God the Father did? He did. He did. He did something before he transferred Carson. What else did he do? He delivered. Good. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So if we're thinking in terms of the process of redemption, it would, it would be twofold here. It would be the deliverance and the transfer. So let's talk about that for a minute. The deliverance. This word means to snatch from danger and to draw to oneself. To snatch from danger and to draw to oneself. It's more than a mere rescue. It's actually a retrieval, a recovery, a reclamation. It's not saying, I'm going to get you out of the mess you're in and then put you back where you were and see how you're going to do with it. No, it's drawing one to oneself all the way so that he's saying, not only am I going to rescue you, but I'm going to put you in my fold, in my flock, and in this case, in my kingdom. It pictures a, 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 a drowning swimmer who is, who is about to go under and drown and this rescuer comes in and says, I have power over the water. I have power over where you are. I'm going to pull you out and bring you to myself and you're not going to drown. It pictures a, a prisoner of war who is in a, in a dungeon of a cell and, 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 and these soldiers come in and they have power over the opposing army and make their way through and get through the prison and get through the cell and grab their comrade, and bring them out and say, we're taking you back home, soldier. It pictures this ultimate, this ultimate rescue, this ultimate deliverance from the domain of darkness. And so that, that gives us the two other words we want to see is this word domain. It, it, it's it's uh, not so much physical power as it is authoritative power. 
is authoritative control. We've talked about the word power. uh, Sometimes it's this Greek word dunamis, which means physical power. It means the ability to move something or to to have um, strength over something. This word for power, this word domain, means I have authoritative rights over this, this object or over this person. And what Paul is saying is that you have been delivered, you have been snatched from and brought to, out of this rightful ownership of darkness. Now, the darkness that he is describing is, is obviously spiritual darkness. It's, it, it's, it's what Paul is using to describe sin, separation, misery, death, and condemnation. He's, he's saying you have been delivered from the domain, the rightful power and authority of sin against God, misery apart from God, death because you don't love God, condemnation forever apart from the mercy and grace of God. That's what you've been delivered from. And so what did God do? He he snatched us from the power of spiritual darkness. And the second part of this redemption is that He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He transferred us. Many of you have gotten a transfer before in your life or in your job where you were moved from one place to another or one condition to another. And that's exactly what this Greek word means. It means to transfer, to move from one place or one condition to another place and another condition. And Paul is saying, you guys who have been redeemed have been moved. You've been placed from one condition, one place to another condition and another place. God moved. He transferred Abram from the land of Ur down to the place that he was giving to Abraham. God moved the people of Israel out of Egypt where they were in bondage ultimately to the promised land. God moved Israelites when they were in bondage to Babylon years and years later back to uh, Jerusalem and the promised land. And so there is a physical moving. There is a physical moving that is going on. It's a transfer. Now... In this case, God transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the Son He loves. Now, on Wednesday nights, we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically for the last few weeks, we've been studying the Lord's Prayer. And two Wednesdays ago, we prayed, Your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm not going to have a pop quiz right here, but we defined the kingdom of God two Wednesday nights ago. And this is what we said. We didn't say that this was the end-all, be-all definition of the kingdom of God. But what we said is that this is a biblical definition and a correct understanding. And this is what we said. The kingdom of God is the place where God's people joyfully do God's will for God's glory. The place where God's people joyfully do God's will for God's glory. Now, I love this. But as we read Scripture and as we study Scripture, our theology and our understanding deepens. It broadens. It gets better and it gets bigger. And so now we come to verse 14 and Paul calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so now what do we have have to say? Well, was our definition wrong? No, our definition wasn't wrong. But according to Paul, we would need to, to amend the definition. And what we would say is that, that what Paul is trying to get to us is that the kingdom of God is the place where God's Son reigns. 
He reigns over God's people who joyfully do God's will for God's glory. If you read Psalm chapter 2, you see that the son is the king and the king is the one who rules and reigns over all and he is the king in this kingdom. And what Paul is driving us to see is this special, unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son and to say there is no tension between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his beloved son. It's one kingdom. The Father has bestowed upon the Son all rights, all privileges, and all power to rule and reign in his kingdom. And so you've been transferred into the kingdom where God's Son reigns. You remember in Mark chapter 1, we studied about six or seven or eight months ago, Jesus is going to be baptized by John the Baptist. And Jesus goes into the waters, and, and John baptizes him, and that as Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens, the skies completely part. The Spirit of God comes down as a dove and the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I believe that in some ways that was the inauguration of the kingdom of the Son of God because the same phrase is used right here that you have been transferred to the Son that God the Father loves. And so what did, what did God do? He literally moved us to the kingdom where His Son reigns for the Father's glory. Let's ask one final question. When, when did God do this? When did the Father do this delivering and do this transferring? Did He do it? Is He going to do it in the future? Well, no, that's not what the text indicates. Um, is He doing it right now? Or is He redeeming us as we go? That's not what the text indicates. The text indicates that He did it. It's done. It's a final, accomplished act. The, the, the tense tells us that it, it is, this was a snapshot. The Father accomplished it in a point in history where the deal is done, it is sealed, you have been redeemed. And so that, that, that draws us to really ask the question, how, how did this happen? Because you see, in this verse, we see the process of redemption. We see that God delivered us, that He moved us, that He transferred us, that He placed us in the condition of being in the kingdom of the Son that He loves, but it doesn't tell us how. It doesn't say, how did He do this? What, what, what did it look like? What did, he, what did He do in order to make it happen? And I believe that verse 14 gives us that hint. The second part of our outline is the provision of redemption. The provision of redemption. If we saw the process, we need to see the provision. It says, in whom, in whom we have redemption. Now, we need to make an observation. Paul does not explain to us the work of redemption in this verse. He doesn't even explain to us the work of redemption in this book. But what he does do is he gives us the person who accomplished redemption. He gives us the Redeemer himself. And in this verse, he's saying, in Him we have redemption. That is, in the beloved Son we have redemption. And so he wants us to ask the question, how do we have redemption in His Son? 
Is it just because you say so, Paul? Is it just because it's been declared to be the case? Can, can God just simply say, listen, you guys were in the domain of darkness. You guys um, loved yourselves. You loved your sin. You were tempted and you fell and you trespassed and you walked over all of the boundaries that were put in place. But I'm just going to declare you free. No, God, God is saying to us through the Holy Spirit that something had to be done. You have to be redeemed. And so the question is, how do we have redemption in Him? We have redemption because God's Son paid the price for us to be redeemed. He paid the price. I want to give you the definition of redemption. This is a technical, biblical definition of redemption. It would be good for you note-takers to write it down. Because when you see the word redeem, when you see the word ransom in the scriptures, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New, this is what it means. It means to buy something back with the payment of a price. To buy something back with the payment of a price. We see it over and over in the Bible. We see the history of redemption. Um, so often in the Old Testament, redemption looked like buying back a piece of property or buying back even a person. If you read Ruth chapter 4, you see where Boaz redeems a piece of land that belonged to Naomi, and he also redeems a woman who is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And he pays the purchase price in order to get the property and in order to get the woman who she then can call her kinsman redeemer, and they marry and they have children, and we know that, that those children ultimately led to the Savior himself. But we see the redeeming of property and the redeeming of people. We also see the redeeming of Israel in Exodus chapter 6. Let me read to you what the Lord says in Exodus 6. He says, I'm the Lord. I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from slavery. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. What the Lord is saying to the Israelites is I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to buy you back and the price will be the judgment. The price will be the outstretched arm that I use upon those people and I'm going to bring you into a land that you now can have as your own as I give it to you. I'm redeeming you, Israel. And all the way through the Old Testament, we see the redemption of Israel. But it's interesting, guys. The redemption of land, the redemption of individual people, and the redemption of the Israelite people is not the dominant theme of redemption in Scripture. The dominant theme of redemption in Scripture is the souls of men. In John chapter 8, listen to what Jesus says. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. I think we can all say that we practice sin. We can all say that we have actively done sins and performed them. And what Jesus would say, well, then you're a slave to sin. You're in bondage to sin. You, you, you have no rights. You have no privileges because you are under the bondage of that kind of darkness. But two verses later, Jesus says in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the Redeemer. And I'm going to set you free by the ransom price that I myself am paying. I am going to go to the cross. And I am going to pay the price that is necessary for you to be freed, for you to be delivered, for you to be transferred into my kingdom. Peter says in his epistle, he says that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ 
like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, let's take a breath for a moment. I want us to consider the work of redemption, the work of Jesus on the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is the act of redemption. And what, what the Son did on the cross as He hung up there was He bore the guilt of our sins. Let me ask you something, folks. Have you ever done something really bad possibly manipulative, definitely selfish, that hurts somebody or other people? Have you ever done that? And after doing it, did you feel guilty? Yeah. You felt guilty. And the reason you felt guilty was because you were guilty. And you walked around and you just had this weight over you. You, this feeling of guilt. You'd you, you try to go to sleep and you couldn't sleep because you felt guilty. You'd try to do your work the next day and you couldn't do your work because you felt guilty. And when, when Paul says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf, Paul's saying Jesus bore the guilt of your sin. He says not only that, he not only bore the guilt of your sin, he bore the punishment of your sin. Like your sin merited suffering. Your sin merited death. Your sin merited separation from the love and mercy of Almighty God forever and ever and ever. And on the cross, Jesus bore that punishment. He was separated from the Father. He bore the punishment of the Father. He suffered the almighty wrath of the Father on the cross. He's bearing not only the guilt of your sin, but He's bearing the condemnation of your sin. And, and not only that, He's bearing the shame of your sin. Let me ask you this. If we were to put up on this screen the ten worst things you have ever thought, said, or did, and everybody else in this church could see them, how would you respond? You'd be shamed, wouldn't you? You'd be absolutely ashamed. And Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5 that not only did he bear the guilt, not only did he bear the condemnation, the weight of that sin, he bore the shame of that sin. Can you imagine the shame that the son felt on the cross, stripped, naked, beaten to a pulp, Treated as if he were the worst criminal who has ever lived. Jesus is saying, I'm not only bearing the suffering, I'm not only bearing the guilt, I'm bearing all the shame that they're supposed to feel so that they'll never have to feel it again. This is the work of redemption. It's on the cross where we are liberated from our guilt, we are liberated from our condemnation, we are even liberated from our shame so that we can walk in celebration, we can walk in joy, we can walk in confidence, we can walk in no shame because we know that we have been redeemed from all of that. 
You see, 2 Corinthians 5 not only says that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, it says that we might become, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So we get all of that taken away from us and we get put on us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only do we get the righteousness, we get a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not only do we get this loving relationship, but we get all of the riches of God in Christ. That's why when I told the story and the king said, all of this kingdom not only belongs to me, it belongs to you. Because when we receive Jesus and that redemption process happens, we get everything that God the Son has. It belongs to us every bit as much as it belongs to Him. And so, the work of redemption is an amazing work. And this is the provision that God the Son provided. In Him we have redemption. Let's look finally at the privilege of redemption. The privilege. It, it just simply says, in Him you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. So the privilege of redemption is the forgiveness of sins. Again, you note takers, you want to write down this definition. Forgiveness is the release of sins from the sinner. It is the release of sins from the sinner. It is the sending away of all of the guilt, all of the shame, and all of the condemnation that belongs to you. It's gone. And, and what God is saying when He forgives sins is He's saying, I will not hold this against you ever again. I will not bring this up to you ever again. I will not even spread it around to other people in doing that, I am sending it away. It is gone forever. You are no longer that person. You no longer bear that weight. You no longer bear that guilt. You no longer bear that condemnation. You are now free, free indeed, because the Son has set you free. Now, it's reading Bruce Demarest, The Cross and Salvation. It's a great theological book. It is deep. But I will tell you, it is one of the best theology books I've ever read. The Cross and Salvation by Bruce Demarest. And, and listen, I was reading this statement this week. And he starts off by saying, the fundamental issue of human existence is. Now whenever I read a statement that begins by saying, the fundamental issue of human existence, antennas go up. Right Here you have a master theologian who studied the Bible for decades and decades and he tells me the fundamental issue, the fundamental issue of human existence is this. Well, I'm all ears. What is it, Bruce? This is what he says. He says, the fundamental issue of human existence is how sin can be forgiven. And how the spiritual chasm between God and His creatures can be bridged. Nothing is more important in your life than whether or not your sins are forgiven. Now, if you, you read online in the news today or you watch the news this evening, you're not going to get that picture. You're, you're, you're going to see that the fundamental issue of human existence is terrorism or the fundamental issue of human existence and the problems are, are, are because of uh, uh, racism that is in America, or the fundamental problem of human existence is, is because we're not giving civil rights to homosexuals everywhere and anywhere, or the fundamental issue of human existence is, is deflate gate, and we've got to figure out that thing before we can go any further in life. 
And, and what the Bible says is none of that matters if your sins are not forgiven. So I want to ask you today, brothers, sisters, children, have your sins been forgiven? Do you know without the shadow of a doubt that your sins have been released? That God has said, I'm sending them away. I'm never going to bring them up against, against you again. I'm not going to hold them against you. I'm not going to well it up and bring condemnation upon you and say, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're not free. No, you're enslaved. Do you know the freedom and the joy and the grace of forgiveness? I know one of the sweetest, most blessed things about marriage is forgiveness. When a husband sins against a wife and a wife sins against a husband and they can't, they can't stay in that state. It's just as miserable. And so they come to one another and the one says, Honey, I, I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? And, and the other spouse says, I do forgive you. I'm not going to bring this up against you ever again. I'm not going to hold it against you in my heart. And I'm not going to talk to anybody else about this. You are completely forgiven. Come here and give me a hug. That's beautiful. It's glorious. But I want to tell you, as glorious and beautiful as it is in the husband and wife relationship, it is all the more better in the father-child relationship between God and His children. And I will tell you, there is nothing greater than the privilege of forgiveness of sins in the work of redemption. Phil, if you guys would come on up. I want to ask you if you can find a, a way to just get uh, in a place where you can just worship the Lord right now. You can think about redemption because I'm going to challenge you in a few ways. I want to challenge you in a way that you're going you're to communicate with God right now so that you can respond to this work of redemption rightly. We look at the process. We look at the person who accomplished it. We look at the privilege that we have and the forgiveness of sins. The question is, how do we respond? How do we respond? I think the first way to respond is to ask the question, have I experienced redemption? So you may want to communicate with the Lord right now and answer that question. Have I experienced redemption? And if the answer is yes, why don't you take a moment and thank God for your redemption? Now that, that's the thrust of this text. Paul is encouraging us to give thanks to our Redeemer. So thank Him right now. And as you're thanking Him, if there's any of you who have not experienced redemption, you've not been redeemed, you don't know what forgiveness is, you don't know what cl the, the clearing of your name is. And call on the Redeemer. All you have to do is say, I trust in the King to deliver me from darkness and into His kingdom. I trust in His work. I trust in what He's done. Please forgive me.
The second thing that I want to call you to do is celebrate redemption. Celebrate what God has done for you in Christ. What does celebration look like in your life? Sing. Sing with joy, with freedom. Pray. Raise your hands because you've been rescued. Read the Scriptures with excitement and joy because in every page you see your Redeemer who has forgiven you of your sins. Man, have parties. Bring Christians over to your house and grill out the best meat and have the best vegetables and, and do a cake and just celebrate the fact that you're in a redeeming relationship with the King who has, de who has delivered you from darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of His Son. Be a celebrator of the One who redeems and do it in prayers and songs and parties and everything else, but don't be a stick in the mud because you've been redeemed. And then be a promoter of redemption with the people of God. Man, speak words of redemption into our lives. Call me on the phone and talk to me about redemption. Promote to me the greatness and the bigness of our Redeemer and how He who is in me is greater than He who is in the world. And then grow in the theology of redemption because the more you know about redemption and the more you study it, the deeper you go in it, the higher you'll go in worship and the holier you'll go in your lifestyle. And then whatever you do, Preach the message of redemption in your neighborhood, to your children, to your spouse, to your best friend, to your Facebook friends, to your co-workers, to your boss, to everybody that you encounter on a daily basis. Preach the message of redemption because while there is nothing greater than the forgiveness of sins, there is nothing worse than the lack thereof. Celebrate redemption. Promote redemption. Grow in redemption. Preach redemption. And do it in the power of King Jesus who has delivered us and transferred us.